Investors Chronicle. On the Companies and Market Show this week, our result of the week is Wizz Air. Madeline Taylor joins us to talk through that. We also touch on some of the airline chaos from the last week or so. And then Christopher Akers is on hand to talk through his feature this week, Food Unchained. A lot of gloom around food companies recently, but should investors be taking the long view? All that and more, let's get into it. Companies and Market Show, welcome back. It is Thursday the 9th of June as we speak, back after a week off following the Jubilee weekend. I say back, our host Dan Jones, he's still away, so in lieu of him... We have uh, Alex Newman. Hi, Alex. Hi, John. How are you doing? I'm good, thank you. What's coming up on the show today? We've got Airlines, Wizz Air. It's our result of the week. Yeah, we're going to be talking uh, with uh, Maddie and Chris about airline chaos. And we're also going to be speaking with Chris about his his excellent food feature. Yes, as you say, we're also joined by Christopher Akers. Hi, Chris. Hi, hi John. And Madeline Taylor. Hello. It's good to be here. Lovely stuff. Right, before we get going properly... A quick news roundup from the week so far. Thursday morning, the FT have reported that the UK chemist chain Boots has been subject to a bid. Apollo Global Management and Mukesh Ambani's Reliance Industries have teamed up with an offer that values the company at between five and six billion pounds. Elsewhere, staff shortages have led to chaotic scenes at UK airports for more than a week as operators struggle to deal with soaring demand for air travel. After laying off workers during the pandemic, airline operators are now struggling to plug that gap. British Airways told the IC that they're in the biggest recruitment drive in their history. The recent chaos, however, has not dampened the budget travel sector recovery in terms of passenger numbers. Wizz Air this week reported a 390% surge from the previous year. As Alex says, we'll be talking Wizz Air and all things aviation in a moment. JD Sports is setting aside £2 million to cover fines from the Competition and Markets Authority after the watchdog provisionally found it guilty of illegal price fixing over football merchandise. The CMA alleges that JD Sport colluded with football club Rangers FC and the maker of its branded merchandise, Elite Sports, to fix prices in 2018. A couple of weeks ago, we told you that fashion retailer Ted Baker's sale to private equity had moved a step closer. On Tuesday, however, it emerged the sale is now somewhat back on ice as the, quote, preferred bidder uh, withdrew their offer. Share price fell 19% on the news. City Pub Group have said that recent like-for-like sales were ahead of pre-pandemic levels and have received a major boost from the Jubilee holiday period. Sales, quote, continue to strengthen faster than predicted, the premium pub owner said. And finally, the London-listed private hospitals group Mediclinic has rejected a £3.4 billion cash offer from a consortium made up of Remgro, its largest shareholder, and the shipping company MSC. Mediclinic says the offer significantly undervalued the company. Okay, this week we begin in the skies or more likely stuck in a queue in Gatwick South Terminal with the airlines, which, like their customers, have been having a pretty miserable time of late. And we're going to start with the carrier whose shares uh, have been in sharpest freefall. That's Wizz Air. Maddie, you covered their results this week for the the, the period for the 12 months to the 31st of March. Uh, what happened? So it really confirmed what we've been seeing from the travel sector generally, which is that demand has come absolutely roaring back. But unfortunately, it's profits that are the question. Because, I mean, you've got on the one hand rising fuel prices, 
there's a problem with staff shortages, both from the airlines and the airports. And now you've got, you know, issues creeping in about consumer demand, uh, which might even start to flag as the year goes on. So Wizz Air has really been kind of the most dramatic example of this that we've seen yet. So they nearly tripled their passenger numbers that they were flying to about 27 million in the year ending in March. But at the same time, profits sunk, you know, even deeper into the red, making a loss of 642 million euros. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty staggering looking at the figures. I mean, the comparisons were still in a bit of a pandemic hangover aren't we so I suppose the the 2021 full year figures there would have captured all of the lockdowns all of the total shutdown of the the European uh, airline industry Um, so no surprise that I mean tripling sounds amazing doesn't it but those are compared to some miserable figures what's what's behind those that horrible loss for a second year in a row though it's a real tangle of various problems that have all hit at once. So, I mean, one thing you've got to remember is that airlines are just a notoriously low margin business, even at the best of times. So any one of these problems happening on their own could be a huge issue just in and of itself. So you've also seen staffing become an issue just across the board. You even had EasyJet saying, I think this is quite a a good encapsulation of the problem. EasyJet has said that on their smallest aircrafts, they're cutting out the back row of just six seats uh, in order to make it so that they have to have one fewer member of the cabin crew actually on the plane at the time, which I think points to the measures that they're having to take to cut costs are Mm. quite considerable at this point so staffing has been an issue that's one of the things but then you've also got this concurrent problem with the fuel prices and that's really hit Air because unlike any of the other airlines they were completely unhedged for their jet fuel prices when the crisis first started in Ukraine which obviously kicked up fuel prices massively. Yeah and I suppose oil was already rising ahead of the Russia's invasion, wasn't it? So they've they've had that whole 12 months with prices creeping up. Have they done anything to change their, you know, their pretty bold hedging strategy? Are they still flying kind of blind into whatever whatever is going to happen in uh, in commodity markets? So yes, they have had to row back on that. So management first cut out their hedging right after the onset of the coronavirus pandemic, which obviously made demand for air travel quite uncertain. And you could sort of see the rationale partially at the time. In March, they uh, they started some partial hedging for the current year, but that only extends until August. So they, I think they said they're 30% hedged until August and then nothing yeah. uh, beyond that which could obviously continue to be a massive issue for them, you know, because nobody can really predict when the current uh, commodity uh, prices are going to come back down. Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? It's like uh, hedging strategy or no hedging strategy until it gets bad and then you have a hedging strategy. But I'm, I'm imagining those options that they're buying are getting pretty, yeah, pretty expensive. I presume if you're a shareholder, that's one thing you're really keen to see in the next couple of months is if they get, it can extend that hedging because it's just looks so volatile at the moment that it's just going to blow this year's results out again isn't it potentially certainly i mean and when you look at the other airlines none of them were quite that bold you know Wizz Air is notably in the worst position in terms of hedging compared to ryanair or easyjet and any of the other low-cost budget airlines 
Yeah. And so, I mean, at the same time, they've they've had this, um, and, and they're still talking about it this week, weren't they? The, the a real expansion strategy. And I, I, just, I, I remember in the pandemic, it's one of the stories which really caught my eye. I think it, it was in the second lockdown or so, they issued a 500 million euro bond at a sort of, sort of 1.3% coupon, just like astonishingly cheap debt for such a wobbly industry. And then they did it again this the start of this year, I think even cheaper uh, bond issuance. So they've had this very cheap cost of capital to expand. But I mean, the the, the kind of headwinds they're facing now are likely to check that or is it still full steam ahead into, you know, the, the, the Middle East and elsewhere? Yeah, so it's been a real selling point for them to investors is that they're seen as the growthiest out mm. of all these budget airlines. As you say, they've really been pursuing quite an ambitious expansion policy and they haven't shown any signs that that's letting up yet. So they're planning to expand their capacity by 40% compared to pre-pandemic. Um, and that includes growing their fleet from, I think, 153 to 182 aircraft. And at the same time, they're pursuing uh, opening a new airline in Malta and then potentially also expanding to Saudi Arabia. So they're really not showing any signs that they're slowing down on that front. But as you say, there are huge questions about how they're going to be able to fund this, um, not just them, but sort of any business that is mostly debt fueled in terms of their growth. The outlook is much worse for them now. Yeah, it's, it's so interesting, is it? I mean, just in the space of a couple of years, I remember that their their hubs were in the east in east East Europe, so they had this lower cost when it came to labour and just operating overheads. And then at the same time, they I mean they had debt, but it wasn't extreme leverage like some of the the, the competitors in Europe. But this seems to have completely reversed. They're going into what looks like pricier markets, presumably for for operating costs, and then. Yeah, at the same time, I mean, their leverage is expanding rapidly. That you know, the more the, the more they lose as well. Yeah, that's uh, definitely true. And I mean, yes, they they are noticeable for having this focus on the east. That's still part of their policy is that they want to expand uh, further into Eastern Europe and into the Middle East. And I have heard some talk that this might help them. That one of the rationales for this is that it might help them to avoid some of the seasonality that comes right. with with airlines so expanding into territories that may not uh, have such a noticeable impact of the summer being much busier than the rest of the year so it might uh, lead them to have a more stable pattern of sales but i think that's pretty much all speculation at this point really yeah absolutely i mean one one place where sales are neither stable nor growing because they've disappeared is, is ukraine they i mean they had some routes operating out of kiev and and Lviv there what's what's the status now did they update this week on on what's going on yes so ukraine really was one of their target markets obviously right, before okay. what happened um and so they were uh, actively operating out of there so they had to suspend and cancel a lot of their flights and routes obviously from february onwards but they do still have four aircraft that are stranded there and they're hoping to repatriate but there hasn't really been much progress that they've reported yet and you know they have a those aircraft have a book value of about 25 million euros so it is quite a lot riding on it right okay i mean it sounds like a mess really i mean we've we've, we've moved to a hold it seems like that the feeling there is it's a pretty um nervy hold given all their challenges is that sort of fair assessment of your take on the results, Maddie? Or... 
Yeah, so I mean, I think it's just very difficult to see what's going to happen. I think mm. that's really what investors are reacting to. So like EasyJet and Ryanair before them, they haven't given any real guidance for the full year, the next full year results, but they have said that they expect that they're going to keep operating at a loss over the summer, which is quite a considerable blow because the summer is usually the busiest season for airlines. So a lot of it is going to hinge really on the consumer outlook as well that we haven't really talked about. Obviously, with costs of living going up, there is some doubt over whether this travel boom is going to be sustained into the long term. And at the moment, Wizair is, is noting that they're seeing quite positive bookings growth and they also plan to hike their prices. But obviously, price hikes are slightly contentious in, a, in that kind of negative consumer environment. So it could help or it could drive people away from travel completely. Yeah. So it's, I think it's really that investors are looking for more certainty than is really on offer here. Really interesting. I mean, the one thing that I can imagine might put consumers off has been recent headlines. And Chris, if I could bring you in, I mean, you wrote a story on this subject for this week, and it'd probably be a bit familiar to anyone who's been following the mainstream news. For for those who those listeners who who might need catching up, what's what's been going on in UK airports at the moment? Yes. So as Manny mentioned, uh, airports and airlines are really struggling to recruit enough staff at the moment to deal with soaring post-pandemic demand after they let workers go during COVID. So for example, British Airways let go around 10,000 workers over the course of the pandemic, and now they're struggling to recruit them back. The industry says that the government didn't give them enough warning about the end of travel restrictions, but uh, the Transport Secretary Grant Schatz has come out recently to blame uh, operators for not being prepared enough for the end of restrictions. And he's also said the government won't listen visa rules to let more European workers in to help with the problem. And this lack of staff is why we saw such crazy scenes at airports over the Jubilee weekend and a half term break with short term cancellations, lots of delays. Uh, there was even a report of pilots having to help load bags on, onto planes. So it's a chaotic situation at the moment. Yes, I, I mean, it's kind of amazing. I had no, I, I, I had to say, I didn't ha- have the notion that um, airlines were operationally run so thinly that that we, could, you know, they they hit a, a crunch or they overpromise and then they're having to cancel cancel flights. You'd have thought, wouldn't you, that that they they kind of put the staffing in place well ahead of of agreeing to service the routes. Is this? I mean, if this is a problem now, should it's going to persist through the the summer as well? Yeah, I mean, there are conflicting views on this. So a couple of analysts I've sort of spoken to have said they expect things to improve by the summer. Then a couple of days ago, the head of Heathrow Airport came out and said he thinks it'll take sort of 12 to 18 months to improve. So it's going to be a long term issue by the sounds of it. One of the the problems is it takes quite a lot of time to actually train and, and hire new staff, given security problems at airports and background checks etc so it's not a quick fix. Maddie did um, Wizz Air have much to say about what's what's been going on in the last couple of weeks in the UK or is it given their focus they are that they're slightly less impacted by what's been been happening on this on this island? 
they've been no exception to that general trend that Chris just mentioned. I mean, they've had to cancel a number of flights and including all of their flights uh, from June onwards from Doncaster Airport. And the other two airports that they operate out of, Luton and Gatwick, have been two of the worst hit by the cancellations. Right. So they're definitely that they're definitely experiencing it. However, they they were they did take pains to uh, note that their staffing levels have actually gone up from I think four thousand to about six thousand seven hundred now. That's compared with pre-pandemic levels, and they say that they're staffed fully for a normal environment, which I think is their way of saying that they think it's the airport uh, airports that are at fault here, not the airlines. So they mentioned a lack of air traffic controllers and mm-hmm. security staff at the airports. Wow. So, I mean, lots of mudslinging then. Some blaming politicians, others blaming the airports themselves. I mean, for investors, I suppose the question here is, is the the, the promised rebound post-pandemic dead already? I mean, we, we saw, um, Chris, I, I don't know if you have thoughts on this as well. I mean, the flights have recovered, according to Eurocontrol, to about 85% of 2019 levels. I mean, it's, it's just that that long list of headwinds facing the sector mean that you're either going to have disgruntled customers now, or or um, or just that you know we're going to have failures within the the airline market. I think it's fair to say it's quite a mixed picture. So I spoke to right. BA this week for uh, a news article I wrote, and they were saying that they're getting lots of headlines, obviously about uh, flight cancellations. But BA had pre-planned all all of their cancellations, so there's a bit of a different situation for them compared to the budget mm. of operators and as we've been discussing demand is rebounding well after the pandemic i think the, the key issue is how airlines go about dealing with that demand they're obviously struggling with that at the moment as, as you say lots of disgruntled customers maddie maddie mentioned um summer trading is going to be quite poor for some of the operators as well so i think in the short term clearly lots of volatility it's, it's just a very unclear picture so it was a difficult one for investors i think that is reflected in why we sort of moved to, to hold with with whiz i don't think i had the worst experience but uh it was actually at gatwick uh i think so many flights had been delayed that the airport i i went there in the evening that essentially there was no food left in the airport it was wow. a sort of post-apocalyptic vision you were stumbling around because everybody whose flights had been delayed had clearly had the same idea of you know let's go and get let's go and get a meal while our flight while we're waiting for our flight and the result was that the only thing the only hot food you could find was from one press à manger they who seemed to just have endless stores of the mozzarella and tomato croissant <laughs> so you could see people you know, gradually realizing this was the one bit of hot food and, you know, it was a pipeline into Pret-a-Manger, the <laughs> finest hour. Yeah, yeah. There's always Pret, isn't there? I suppose holding the can for, for everyone else. The city dies, airlines die. There's always going to be Prets. Brilliant. Well, th- thanks so much for um, for discussing the airline chaos Um with us i'm sure we'll be following the travails of the companies in the sector over the coming months and the summer okay then um well to finish uh i'd like to bring back uh chris who wrote this week's excellent cover feature uh which is on food um or more specifically the food unchained how to tuck into the transformation of the nutrition industry as it reads on the cover uh also on the cover we've got pictures of a basket of vegetables a cow 
a piglet and some grains shimmering in the breeze, but also what looks like, Chris, a burger in a Petri dish, some lab-coated technicians in a warehouse and a robotic arm tending to a vertical farm. Uh, Chris, I mean, food's been in the news an awful lot recently. I mean, in the UK, all the focus is on prices uh, rising and supply chain chaos, and that's reflected globally as well, though on a on a somewhat more frightening scale with with a looming food insecurity and, and hunger crisis exacerbated by the invasion of Ukraine. But you argue in the piece that investors should take a, a longer view on the sector. I mean, what, why are you optimistic? Yes. So as the images on the cover suggest, there's a lot of um, exciting technological progress being made, I would argue, in, in the background of the food sector which I think quite a lot of people and investors probably aren't really aware of. My feature sort of focuses on meat alternatives, which we'll come to. And I think this could drive growth over the next few decades for companies which are getting involved in this area. Uh, Meat alternatives are becoming more attractive to consumers for a host of reasons, but I would argue they also have the potential to help societies reduce the environmental impacts associated with traditional meat production and agriculture, as well as meeting uh, growing global food demand as global population increases. So there's lots of potential. I suppose that kind of win-win-win was one of the reasons why Beyond Meat both became the poster child for this when it when it listed a couple of years ago, but it's also it kind of encapsulated lots of these themes into one stock almost, and, and it was enormously successful on its debut. I mean, it's fair to say that that after plenty of initial excitement, the you know the air has gone out of the story, or rather maybe the beetroot juice has has uh, sort of bled out of the imitation burger. But what what's happened there with with the Beyond Meat story? Is this a question of execution gone wrong, or is it stalling in the in the consumer appetite for um, meat substitutes? So yeah, as you mentioned, Beyond Meat is a key player in the plant-based meat sector. It had a huge IPO uh, in 2019, but yeah, the, the shares have fallen back by over 60% since then. It's a pretty disastrous performance. I think there are a couple of things going on uh, with Beyond Meat. One is there was a lot of hype at the time. It's at the forefront of this new technology with plant-based meats. But yes, gr- growth has fallen back a bit. Um, I mentioned in the future, US sales of plant-based meats were flat in 2021, and that disappointed uh, the market. There's also the argument that the company has sort of put all its eggs in one basket by focusing just on one uh, product with plant-based meats, no no diversification. But I think a counter-argument to that would be that we are still in the very early stages of the meat alternatives revolution. And I think I mean, I've spoken to analysts who would argue that this is still quite a solid long-term investment option and still very early days, as, as I said. Yeah, I, I suppose, you know, their, their IPO was a mark of that promise because, you know, they, they still are, at least at the end of last year, loss-making, you know, two years into their life as a public company. So the fact that they were able to raise so much money then and, you know, trying to push into the, the American food market is no easy task that, it's, it's, all, it's that, almost sort of too, yeah. too much too much too soon i think with that with For that sure. company yeah. and uh, a big ipo the valuation was quite lofty again that, that it's still the short term looking further ahead so it could have a uh, a good path ahead of it beyond meat 
and I suppose without having to get into the you know the loss making super highly valued speculative end of of the the sector I mean you, you single out a number of companies in the in in the piece you know Unilever Treat Cranswick are just just a, a few of them which are are or have pivoted somewhat towards plant-based products and and sales there have been growing rapidly I mean to me this diversification if consumer tastes in the west particularly are changing makes a lot of sense for investors i suppose it does come down to the the bottom line as well though doesn't it not just what's what's driving or changing the the mix at the top line so is there kind of is there a margin benefit here to you know if you're a cranswick to actually be pushing away from dairy and pork and and going down the mediterranean foods business which they they have done in the last year yeah it's it's an interesting question i think so far the margin picture is quite mixed i think it's important to say that for a lot of these companies they've only recently got into plant-based foods and mixed alternatives so it might take a couple of years to see what the margin picture is like i mean going back to beyond meats its margins have sort of struggles recently it doesn't paint a great picture i think it's an important point to make here that meats alternatives tend to be more expensive as well for consumers mm. which obviously factors into the margin conversation but it sort of industry figures i've spoken to argue that they are aiming to bring costs down sort of parity with traditional meat products over the next few years and that will obviously benefit demand so that was a bit bit of a a sidetrack but i think the evidence on margins will become clearer over time we are dealing with sort of new technologies new products so it'll take some time to get a clearer picture i think yeah i suppose i suppose pork or chicken doesn't need a massive marketing budget it's quite a well-established product isn't it um compared to you know the competitors now emerging just just on just on i mean just on diversification i think it is important to note that lots of these companies are diversifying um Mm. it is obvious that they're seeing the importance of trends around plant-based meats younger people for example are, are more likely to be um, eating meats only occasionally or not eating meats at all. And wealthier countries in the West are consuming less meats even even while global consumption uh, rises and companies are recognizing that. Uh, so I spoke to Devereaux for the piece and they uh, make casings for sausages and they, they said the popularity of veggie sausages is, is increasing and for that reason they're examining ways to uh, to use their casings in non-meat products. So yeah, good example of a company recognizing what's happening in the market and slightly changing changing tack. Veggie sausages, of course, now in the Bank of England's inflation uh, basket calculations. So uh, just underlines the the growth of that of of that product. You, you talked a little bit about, I suppose, the margin picture evolving over time. The holy grail, when I suppose people are talking about long term trends with meat of course is what's going to happen with cultured meat or lab grown lab grown meat okay we, we might be talking about some years hence now but i suppose the huge promise here is if if it can be scaled almost in a lab you reduce all the enormous costs of input pricing the vagaries of crop markets etc cetera, etc cetera. the other question for investors though i mean is how far away is is all of this before it becomes part of the mainstream food industry and are there any ways in right now yeah so i think it's important to understand first of all what we actually mean by cultured meat so mm. cultured meats or lab-grown meats is where uh, meats is produced using a tissue sample from a real animal 
and the cells are then grown in a bioreactor. And, and the idea is that the end product is the real deal. So that, yeah, the, the technology is making progress. There are a couple of ways in for investors at the moment in the UK, a company called Agronomics, which the IC has written about before. And Agronomics focuses on cultured meats companies that has several uh, investments in, in companies in the space. Another option that's just uh, listed in London recently is called BSF Enterprise. Quite a small company, but it's aiming to produce the UK's first 100% uh, lab-grown meats in the next 12 months. So that demonstrates that progress is being made in this area. But yeah, options are quite limited at the moment for investors in terms of listed companies, but things are emerging. And I think over the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years, that will accelerate and more opportunities will emerge along with that. Yeah, you certainly feel um, the first big player to, to, to get on board with that. Though I imagine even that, you know, the Tyson Foods, you know, meat mega companies out there are paying very, very close attention to the potential wholesale disruption of their <laughs> of their business models. But um but no that was that was that's fascinating, Chris. There's obviously plenty to chew over there. Um and you can read much more about the, the companies Chris highlights in this week's cover story, which again is Food Unchained. That's out on the the, the 10th of June from all good purveyors of weekly investment magazines. The Companies and Markets show this week was hosted by Alex Newman and edited and produced by me, John Rogers. And for Maddie's write-up of Wizz Air or, or Chris's long read on food, head on over to the Investors Chronicle website or find it in the latest edition of our magazine. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.